everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Fitness Canner Podcast. As always, I am your host, Eric Feigl, and I'm joined today by my friend Bill Andrews, who has been uh, in the strength training game since he uh, the ripe old age of 12. He now has been in the uh, a physical therapist for next year will be 50 years, and he's he has some pretty interesting stories that I think everybody's gonna be able to take a little bit um, a little bit away from and apply it to their own training and even really their own life. I mean he's he's done a lot of interesting work. So, Bill, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, it's good to be with you, and I appreciate the the opportunity. You've covered uh, some of uh, my biographical data. Yes, I next year will have been a physical therapist for 50 years. Uh, more who I am is uh, since age 12, which is 60 years, I've been my own in-house human performance laboratory. <laughs> I also enjoy I also enjoy telling a story. I try to be uh, colorful and flamboyant so that people will remember who you are. My my father always uh, uh, gave me good advice and said uh, it doesn't especially matter whether people in some cases like you, but will they remember you when you're gone? So you always try to stand out. I'm I'm kind of a feeble imitation of Arthur Jones who had that neck. Everybody uh, who knew Arthur remembers Arthur and uh, fondly. Uh, yes, uh, I've been a physical therapist for all those years, but more than that, as I say, I've been a person that's been around the uh, the iron game, so to speak. Back when I was a kid, uh, they called it uh, physical culture. And uh, so perhaps the most important thing I offer your listener today is that I might serve as a window for the younger generation to appreciate the changes that have occurred over the last 50 years. Uh, things were not always as they are today. Right. Uh, but but uh, when you first started getting training, what what was what were the what were your limitations, and, and how did you how did you get started with actual strength training? Well. Uh, yes, uh, back then, uh, the ads uh, that might uh, point you towards, uh, once again, the physical culture sort of thing, which was mostly a West Coast sort of thing, would be in uh, outdoors magazines, and typically the, the uh, most uh, uh, apparent one was the Charles Atlas. Uh, he had a system where you did not use equipment. It was called dynamic tension. I looked that up this morning. It's actually in Wikipedia. Uh, Charles Atlas's real name was Angelo Siciliano. I bought that course. There was another uh, George F. Jowett, who was one of the uh, early 1920s uh, uh, strongman type of things, and he had uh, uh, crude barbell types of things. Uh, the exact way I got involved in what I was to spend the rest of my life doing is that when I was just short of 12 years old, I was a um, real geeky sort of fellow. I've always been, uh, I guess, more important than my physical uh, uh, exercise, and that is uh, my mental abilities. I've always been a good student and such. Uh, so... My father thought that perhaps I needed to add a little bit of machismo, so he bought me a speed bag. He bought me a speed bag, and, of course, uh, I put it up and tried hitting it. I also had some eyesight trouble from reading so many books in that at that age that I couldn't coordinate the eye-hand coordination. I couldn't hit the speed bag the third time. One, two, and three, the hand would miss, and I kept going and going and going, and I got rather... Uh, neurotic and irritated of it. So my mother, she says, oh, Billy, that's just too much for you. Why don't you take that down to the hardware store? We didn't have a sporting goods store. And, and trade that for something else. When I got down there, there was these cute little 30-pound adjustable little, they called executive dumbbells. I started with them, and uh, the rest is history. I just kept it up and kept it up and kept it up, see? That's really impressive. Now, what? Yeah, what so what when you are when you just so you get these dumbbells home and what happens? Do you do you get into oh, the magazines well, and if there's limited resources, right? Well, they they give you a little three page thing on what to do. So by the end of like ah. three months I'm 
doing every exercise in the book with the entire 30 pounds. See, so at some point we had to get uh, get uh, more equipment. And over the years, I think the first barbell set I ever bought was the uh, Burr barbell. It was maybe a hundred pound set, and then. Uh, Jackson Barbell out of Jackson, Mississippi sold something. Once again, you would only see these advertisements in uh, outdoors magazines and that sort of thing. See, so I bought a 300-pound set there, and uh, it's a slow evolution, but uh, the biggest jump we made, I suppose, when we went over to Klyonsky's uh, uh, scrapyard and found some American locomotive uh, uh, boilerplate, which was in round discs, which were exactly 65 pounds. So we had a uh, machine guy drill holes in there, and we instantly had an 870-pound barbell that we had to do something with. So we used it for a lot of things. But eventually, uh, even as uh, high school seniors, we, uh, my friend and I, we're doing uh, 870 pound lockout uh, uh, deadlifts and squats. Wow. And that, but, uh, uh, getting uh, back more to the uh, general history of the of the uh, uh, area rather than just what I was doing. Uh, sports training back then, and we're lo- looking at what uh, 1956 uh, was almost entirely, if not entirely, stretching and calisthenics, and the uh, the first athletes that tried to use weights were tolerated minimally as being either eccentric or branded as freaks. Coaches actively resisted you doing that. Uh, At that time, the only, uh, thinking back, the only notable athletes I can remember who used weight was uh, Tommy Cannon at LSU. He was the Heisman Trophy winner in 1959. There was a fellow named Joe Don Looney, I think from Oklahoma. He took, actually took his barbell set to the New York Giants training camp, and that got him a lot of coverage. The best, the greatest back, in my opinion, of all time. Jim Brown was a senior at Syracuse the year I was a senior playing football, and we would our games would end just in time for us to go in and listen to the fourth quarter of Jim Brown running the ball, just wreaking havoc on people. Jim Brown never touched a weight. He was the pro. He he was the typical athlete. And uh, at that time in history, Weeder had yet to publish a magazine. Uh, there were national health club chains like uh, European Health Club and Holiday Health Clubs. They were most famous for just enlisting huge numbers of people, then going bankrupt and taking the money, see? Right, um, yeah. Uh, an interesting uh, thing that was occurring back then is bodybuilding competitions were held in conjunction with weightlifting. So typically, uh, say for their Mr. America contest, it wasn't the Mr. America, it was the U.S. Open Olympic weightlifting. And when that was all done, then the Mr. America competitors would come on. Uh, how, one thing that happened in this one particular year, in 1965, they held the first actual official powerlifting championships. Prior to that, uh, what people did was called the odds lifts, and uh, they sometimes included the, the the three, you know, the bench press, the squat, and the deadlift. But sometimes they do an upright row or a seated press behind the neck or a curl or whatever. But in 1965, they legitimized it so that after uh, a certain level in each weight class when a weight was achieved, they had to weigh the weight because it was a new world record or new oh. U.S. record. So, yeah. uh, long story short, uh, at one o'clock in the morning, the Mr. USA competitors came on. <laughs> so the bodybuilders came on at one o'clock in the morning. I was not there when that occurred. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, going back to high school, I started training alone in an unfinished cellar where I had to stand parallel to the overhead floor joist just so I could stand erect, see. And, right. Uh, be, because uh, most uh, people who even aspired to doing bodybuilding, by the way, they always uh, had in a AAU, that was the only, there was no NPC, you had to do AAU, they always had to have an athletic uh, component. You had to show you were an athlete, 
So if you had credentials, fine. If you didn't have specific credentials, they had you on stage have to lift a weight. And I found a um, a video on uh, YouTube the other day of uh, Steve Reeves lifting. It looked like about 225 pounds uh, overhead, you know, cleaning it and pressing it overhead, putting it down, and then doing his posing routine. Very interesting. Oh. And this was in wow. one of the official contests. See? So. Uh, when I'm in my little unfinished cellar, I'm like 15 years old, lifting weights. Nobody else. Uh, my best buddy, Tommy, had yet to, uh, my high school buddy that I was attached to the hip at, uh, had yet to join me. I practiced the Olympic lifts. Uh, one of the most notable things I've ever done in my life, uh, weighing uh, roughly 170 pounds, I power cleaned 300 pounds in that cellar. Now, I couldn't stand up with it. I could pull it, I could jerk my body under it, and I could smile at the rodents that were crawling across the cellar floor and then <laughs> after about five seconds set it down on the ground. But I could do it whenever I wanted to. I could do a 300-pound clean weighing only 170 pounds. See, That's um, impressive. Yep, and uh, we uh, had no equipment. Arthur Jones is the first fellow to actually do individual exercise pieces and they told Arthur it'll never fly people won't invest either that much money in specific pieces of equipment or dedicate that much floor space and Arthur sort of like you know uh, if you build it they will come that was Arthur's attitude before they even made that particular film you know uh, uh, so in those days instead of we either did squats or the Jefferson lift Jefferson lift was where you have the weight on the ground, put one foot a straddle either side, bend down in an upright sort of deadlift position, grasp yep. the bar, one hand in front of you, one hand in back, and then straighten your legs. And I was able to do 330 pounds for 10 reps in that, and you went all the way down till your butt touched the bar. So it was like right. a full squat. Uh, leg presses typically were done. You had to have one or two training partners who would stand on either side of you. You would have to have construction boots on. They would put the, the bar on top of your legs, and you would do leg presses with this bar balanced on your feet. <laughs> I, know, I know exactly so, what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah that, that, was, that was the difference. Now, uh, uh, I've got one comment to make here, and, and you and I sort of uh, talked about what we would talk about a little bit. And, and if I continue to ramble and go into different subjects, rein me in. <laughs> but that's the way okay, I all right. <laughs> okay. But uh, uh, when I was a junior, uh, Tommy Cummings came to join me, and uh, he had never touched a weight, and we started uh, training together and, you know, two, three hours a day every day of our life. It, it, and by the way, a person doesn't have to train that much, indeed shouldn't train that much, but to us it was like a whole – uh, social buddy buddy type of thing, and that's how it is with a lot of guys in the gym. They insist sure. upon spending huge amounts of time in the gym. They're not doing it for the physical improvement alone. They're doing it for the social aspect. See, right. but anyhow, Tommy and I, I whatever I've done in my life, uh, I'll cover that enough in our discussion. Tommy, at the age of 17 years old, entered a powerlift contest, had to travel way down. We were in New York State, had to travel down to Elmira, New York, to do a powerlifting contest. They asked him what he wanted to squat. He said he was going to start with 400 pounds. They said, you can't do that. Why can't I do that? Because Larry Mintz holds the world record at 406 pounds. Tommy's 17-year-old kid gets under a 400-pound bar, goes all the way. He didn't know that guys only want two-thirds of the way down. Tommy goes all the way down, touches his butt to his heels, and stands up with 400 pounds. Uh, uh, they couldn't believe it. See, so uh, he and I achieved a great deal. Two years before that, there was a young fellow in our town. Uh, town's only 8,000 people. Billy Burns won the Teenage Mr. America when he was a senior in high school. He was our starting fullback, and then Tommy took over for him. Two years before that was John Bohensky. John Bohensky uh, was a 440-pound bench presser when I first met him, when I could do 300 pounds. By the way, the first time I ever did double body weight, I weighed 150 and I did 300 pounds. Most I've ever done is uh, 75 pounds more than double body weight. 
That's the most I've ever bench pressed. John Bohensky never did much in the way of the bodybuilding, but he became the youngest regional manager for Trans-American Insurance Company in the country. That's the kind of person that this training built. Deco Paradise, two years before John, was third team, doesn't sound like much, but third team, third team fullback at Notre Dame University, and a year before that, Tommy Blevins, who was from our same town, a lot of people went to Notre Dame, was also a fullback on that team. See, so wow. the, the, pattern, the pattern here is that every single one of these people and every single one of these people trained alone with no other training partners, with no equipment other than what they could put on a barbell, no, no, no exercise devices, they all excelled. They all were dedicated, and they excelled possibly because they had to be committed because they were isolated and marching to a, a, a different drummer. Today, all athletes right. are required to train, but yet right. very few, very few of the ones that are training today did what myself or Tommy or Billy Burns or John Bohensky or Deco Paradise or Tommy Blevins did. There's a big difference, and, and that's my observation. But you're right. There, there is a huge difference, and that kind of leads me into uh, my next question, which is um, away from uh, athletes, uh, because you know I think for me um, I don't train. I, I wouldn't say I train very athletic people, but yeah. not people who are you know actively in sports. And maybe uh, same for you in your clinic. So right now, who who needs uh, customized and and well thought out strength training? Who who is it for? now as compared to when uh, you know you first started in the game well the the, the observation I would make uh, is that those people who need it the most are perhaps those that approach it the least and that are people that's people that are starting by reason of age and in a lifetime of not being at opt- optimal levels of physical ability those people that are starting to actually have real problems with it, see. Now, yeah. at a younger age, they should set the stage by training. I'm not saying younger people don't need to do it. But my observation has been the old, older people, see. And uh, one might ask, uh, you know, what uh, problems occur with older people that are the greatest. Obviously, the, the easy ones come to mind, knee problems and shoulder problems. But what I have come to specialize in the last, uh, it's, it's been right at 22 years, is low back uh, training, people with problems with their low back. Uh, most clinics see an average of around 20 to 25% of their clientele with back problems. My statistics are 60%. 60% of all my patients have our back patients, and that's wow. because I've been involved with the medics. Now, I've mentioned uh, uh, earlier uh, Arthur Jones. I consider yep. him to be my guru. Arthur Jones, back in the time of the Nautilus, I, I spent uh, something like 13 weekends with Arthur, and I consider that Anything I really, I learned a hell of a lot, and I was actually on the right track in most things before I ever met Arthur. One of the the the, the, the greatest accolade I can think of was the time that when I last visited Arthur, about a year before he died, he was 86 or 88 years old, uh, he laid on me the line that he, his, his favorite line that he would say to people all the time. He would say, you know... I feel like I've lived my entire life on a desert island surrounded by chimpanzees. <laughs> by that, he meant that most people are too stupid to understand what he was talking about. Then he looks right. me right in the eye. He looks me right in the eye as I'm leaving the door, and he says, "But you always understood." See, so I, I, I just love that about Arthur that. Uh, he could be honest, and yet he was very demanding of people around him. Okay, after Arthur sold the uh, the Nautilus company, he then set out to, in his mind, do what nobody else had been able to do, and that is solve the problem of low back injury. And I believe he came as close as he possibly could to doing that. And it took him uh, over 12 years. He he uh, he uh, had sold the Nautilus company for uh, I think it was uh, 126 million dollars or something. Uh, and Which he always regretted. Is, 
Yeah, well, <laughs> uh, they destroyed. You know, they destroyed it, but uh, yeah, wouldn't have mattered. Wouldn't have mattered anyhow because there were so many other. Arthur was the first one, as I said, to develop these individual exercise machines. Now there's like fifty or seventy-five different companies making them. The the, the market would be so uh, segmented today that even if Arthur's equipment was around, it wouldn't be the training choice because there'd be other choices available. See, back then right. it was only Nautilus. Nautilus just happened to be as close to perfect equipment as you could get, but that wouldn't matter today, see. But at any rate, uh, Arthur took, when he sold that company, he took a huge amount, I think I heard $26 million. He gave it to the University of Florida to do a human performance laboratory and to test his equipment. And they tested it, and they finally came up with the MedEx equipment, which is nothing more nothing more than it is a piece of equipment that isolates, for the first time, lower back extensors, deep back extensors that's capable of strengthening them. And, and I, I just used the, the, the phrase of the concept, for the first time. Let me just relate that when I first... Uh, I was unaware that Arthur was in that company. I happened to cross it at a trade show in New York where I met his son, Gary Jones, who informed me that Arthur had a whole new company. And I said, ooh, I didn't know about this. So uh, I just uh, left Gary standing in the lurch and went down the other end of the exhibition hall and found Jim Flanagan, who was Arthur's main guy. Jim invites me down the very next weekend to an exhibition of this equipment, and I bought the equipment. I brought the piece of equipment, or it was delivered to me, $65,000 machine, by the way. Whoa. See, so I had to believe in it. I had to believe in it. Brought it to my uh, uh, building here. Uh, Interesting little uh, factoid was Arthur used me at that seminar when I first met him down in Florida at the University of Florida, and he tested me at seven different angles. When we came up here, my health club manager, I operate not only a clinic but a health club, he tested me. There was no greater than a 2% difference at any one of the seven angles. That shows that the MedEx is a precise scientific measuring device. Okay, knowing that, then we track my progress over the next 12 sessions, the program, Arthur, whether it be with Nautilus or with Medex, always expressed an exact opinion as to how you should train on any device. So right. I filed, you don't reinvent the wheel. You do as Arthur said. It involved uh, using a calculated amount of weight that's based upon the first test for exactly 120 to 140 seconds, which sounds like a high uh, duration, but it's not. It's precisely matched to the high endurance uh, musculature of the low back. Low backs are not meant to be strong. They're meant to have a huge amount of endurance. So you you develop strength within the parameters of endurance training is what you do. Anyway, okay. two, year, two years before that, I before I started, uh, before I sat in this Nautilus machine, I had won the United States Over 40 Masters Bodybuilding Championship. I was still in great shape. I more than doubled my strength in that machine. That tells me that there's not a single human being that can ever come into my building that can't increase the strength of their back by at least 50%. And guess what? If you strengthen anybody's lower back by 50%, their pain, if they've had pain, is going to go down. There's no other choice. So for the last 20 years, as a physical therapist, I have not treated anybody's pain. I don't use ultrasound. I don't use electrical stim. I don't do massage. I don't do hot packs. I do MedEx, and I get double, triple the rate of progress that I ever got when I treated people's pain. See, so anybody that's walking down the street or driving a car past your building or comes in to see you, needs to do isolated back exercise. It's as simple as that. Right. So you're you're attacking the actual issue, not uh not the not what the symptoms projecting. You're going right, right, right. after right after the, the actual need. What um well based on that and all your experience with the the different equipment, 
and the different machines and working with uh, Medex, where do you see the industry headed right now? What what kind of trends are um, do you follow, and and do you think we're we're going in a good direction, in a bad direction? Do you think we're kind of stagnant right now? Do you how do you feel about where we are? Yeah. Um... Uh, I can answer your question by answering a different question, and you'll see the parallel. There are 101 ways that people purport to treat low back pain. And the reason they go in all these different directions, whether it be uh, the expert use of ultrasound or electrical stim or stretching exercises, if they do exercise at all, when I say they, I say the vast majority of physical therapists and other people involved uh, in uh, athletic trainers or whatever. Um, if they do exercise at all, it's stretching. That's not the problem. They're missing the point, see. So when you miss the point of what you need to do, you go in any, who knows how many different directions. I'm here in middle, in, in, in East Tennessee. There's Highway 81 goes up by me. If I want to go to San Francisco and I get on the interstate <laughs> and I turn right towards Bristol, Virginia, Am I ever going to get to San Francisco? See, so if 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 you don't do isolated low back strengthening, then you're missing the point. And if someone has pain, and by the way, this is not just lower back pain, but pain down their leg, which is called sciatica, you're you're going to spend a lifetime doing the wrong thing. See, if you are looking for good results in your area, which is the, the personal training and the, and the general physical fitness, and you're not training correctly, then all sorts of weird different ways of training are going to come up because they're not using what's working. If they were actually exposed to and using what works, they wouldn't even have any desire to go in another direction. So you got this CrossFit stuff and you got functional training, all of which sounds, uh, it actually sounds rational. Is it natural or normal for people to have to get into an expensive piece of equipment and use it a certain way? Is it even normal to lift a barbell? No. But is it functional to jump up and down on steps and to do A, B, C, D, all of which look functional? Oh, yes, that makes more sense. Let's open up a whole franchise for that sort of thing. When in actuality, that is not proper exercise, that's perhaps physical activity, but it's not aimed in the right direction. So where's the industry going today? In whatever direction it's going in, and it'll continue to flail around like a bunch of amoeba in a Petri dish forever, because stupidity stupidity seems to be the natural course of human history. And and I think there's there's a natural resistance for for our bodies which probably correlates to just being human, to be at a certain state. You know, we kind of want to want to not necessarily do the easiest thing, but we want to see something different. And in the meantime, we can just kind of keep doing what we're doing until that big next thing comes around and, and then make adjustments as we need to when it's been yeah. right here in front of us the entire time, especially if you understand just the way the body works. It's, it doesn't oh, yeah. need something over-the-top complicated. It's not that – I mean, it is, it is a complicated – piece of machinery we're walking around in but it it doesn't need all of uh all of the flair i think that that people are searching for oh yes there, there's nothing new under the sun but you know what people want to uh find something new uh, i've got several fellows here that have uh, been at it for a long time I'm, I'm as far as the people that i'm around i'm the most experienced i'm the oldest dinosaur but we've got a club of four fellows here that are all of us uh in our mid-60s that have trained for 20 30 40 uh, in my case 60 years we all are very proud of being dinosaurs being a dinosaur <laughs> that means that when young people come into the business uh, into my health club to train I don't necessarily offer them advice because they're not going to listen to a dinosaur. I make sure they don't hurt themselves. I make sure they don't use the equipment wrong. But I don't try to talk somebody into doing something that they don't want to do, especially since they would consider me to be a dinosaur. A um, rewarding part of it is that every once in a while, when one of them comes up to me and sincerely asks a question, I know that I am uh, uh, talking with 
a soulmate. This is a guy that's actually interested, and usually, if they approach me, they will take my advice. See, so that's that's rewarding. But uh, uh, no, I uh, twenty twenty five years ago, once there became so much uh, opportunity for people to exercise in different ways, and it became yeah. mainstreamed. Once it became mainstreamed, I find that the average person wasn't interested in training the fundamentally proper way that you should. They were looking for the secret. Is there a new exercise? Is there new? There's nothing new in the human body. It needs the same sort of training. Now, um, a few minutes ago, uh, I, uh, as I was listening to you, you used the word or the, the, the word or phrase uh, equipment, expensive equipment, yada yada yada. Um, no, you don't need expensive equipment. And I'm going to go right back to my current area of specialty, which is this low back training. You got a Medex lumbar extension machine that you cost sixty-five thousand dollars to buy it. Okay, do you really need that piece of equipment? Just after I had bought the equipment, and I mentioned a while ago that at the trade show I had met Gary Jones, and he was Arthur's son. He had developed the hammer equipment. Well, I got diverted. I went and saw Arthur. I went down to the University of Florida. I bought this his machine. I then went up to Cincinnati, where you are, and I yep. uh, they were selling the... Uh, uh, they were making the the uh, hammer equipment in a Dr. Scholl's food uh, 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 shoe uh, install factory just south of Cincinnati. Were you familiar with with that manufacturing plant? Uh, I, I don't think so. No. Okay. Well, back then that's what it was, and Arthur uh, Arthur's son Gary was actually living in a shell that he'd built inside the factory. Uh, he, he lived there. I mean, uh, Arthur and his son were really totally involved in what they were doing. See, but anyway, I went up there. The uh, the um, Brown family who had the Cincinnati Bengals. I had right. been been involved with uh, Arthur uh, years before when w- Arthur uh, invited me to go the weekend and help set up the Cincinnati Bengals training camp. Uh, so I knew the Jones family, uh, the uh, Larry or whatever the the sons. Son was a lawyer. He was actually the business guy. Uh, Coach Brown, Paul Brown, you didn't get near him. He was like a god, you know. But at any rate, I went up there to buy uh, to buy the whole line. This is like a month later. I've already got the medics uh, equipment. I've already done business with Arthur. Now I'm doing business with the son. So I stand there. Well, the son had some issues with his father, and he was kind of—he wasn't poo-pooing, but he was saying, "Do you really need a sixty-five thousand dollar machine and this and that?" And he looks at me and says, "You standing right there can duplicate the isolation of the lower back." And he says it to me as a matter of fact. I had enough respect for the son Gary Jones that I knew he was telling me the truth. Okay, I looked at myself. I'm standing there. Now I'm going to kind of brag on my intellect. I look down right. at my knees. I look. At, I look down at my knees and my hips. I put my left foot forward. I put my right foot backwards. I bent down onto my knees like Errol Flynn doing a foil thrust in a, in an old movie. And I looked up at him and I says, "Is that it?" And he says, "Yes." See, if the left side of the, 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 the medics machine winches you in and puts such force up through both femurs into your sacrum and locks your sacrum back against a, a, a round roller that you can't move your pelvis at all so that when you bend forward, you're not bending forward at the hips. You're bending only at the low back. When a person tries to do a deadlift or uh, the Roman chair back arches, Ninety percent of the movement is at the butt muscles, at the hips, the gluteals. It's not at the low back. So people who think they're doing low back exercises when they do deadlifts or back arches are fooling themselves. Only when you're locked in the medics equipment for $65,000 or when you get down in a lunge position, you've locked the left side of your pelvis forward, the right side of your pelvis backwards. If that's true, then what must be true of the center of your pelvis where your back muscles originate? It must be motionless. What genius. See, Gary Jones, 
the son of the genius, was also a genius. Genius lies in simplicity. So when you do your personal training with your people, one one way you've got to assume that sort of one leg forward, one leg backwards with your groin as close to the ground as you can get so you truly lock the pelts. You could have a person just do isometric muscle tension where they totally strengthen, straighten their back as far as they can, hold the muscle tension for about four or five seconds, relax for about three or four seconds, do it again, do it for 120 seconds. If you do that, you are mimicking the exact program we do in this $65,000 machine. We lift the weight when we're in the medics. We have people hold it in the extreme straight position for about four seconds. They then lower forward. Okay, that takes three or four seconds. They do it again. They come to a point of momentary muscular failure precisely at 120 seconds. See, So the first thing you could have people do is just tension. You could then have them perhaps kneeling, facing a low pulley coming off of a, a pulley set, and just pull the pulley. It, uh, from uh, maybe a 30-degree forward bend to all the way back straighten. I you see. you okay. could also do, you could also just stand in back of the person and push on their shoulders. See, so, but you'd have, and then every other set you would put the other leg forward, see. When you do that, you're toning the deepest muscles in the back, you or any of your podcast listeners should Google multifidus, M-U-L-T-I-F-I-D-U-S, multifidus muscles. Those are muscles that nobody ever heard of. Those are the back extension muscles that attach directly from one vertebrae to the one below it. In some cases, they skip a whole vertebrae. The big muscles you see on a wonderfully built bodybuilder are not the muscles we're talking about. You can get them developed by doing deadlifts and that. To lock the pelvis and truly get spinal stability, you must train the multifidus muscles. So I just gave you one hell of a long explanation <laughs> of your your innocently short question, but there it is. Well, and and you, again, you said something very interesting because um, what Gary uh, Jones said about um, the simplicity of it, of the of the of the the motion or the exercise that that he was explaining, you know, he understood how it worked. He understood how yeah. not not necessarily the machine, but the body worked. And I think that's what that's kind of what we're not everyone. But I think that, in my opinion, getting back to my question about what you know, where the industry's heading, I think people people are going backwards in a sense where they want to look at what the exercise is doing. Does that make sense? So if if, if they're walking up to a barbell, they're not going to say, "How's my body? Can I? How can I adapt my body to this exercise?" But yeah. it's it's the opposite, and I think we kind of get lost in in the exercises themselves instead of oh, yes, what yes. the body actually needs. That That's my point. Well, um, remember, uh, whether you're talking uh, uh, barbells or equipment, uh, fancy equipment or other, you know, these CrossFit people and all these people have uh, bags you hold up and, you know, all sorts of weird kettlebells, uh, which are from the 1920s strongman era and stuff. Uh, regardless, when uh, you stand in front of somebody and you tell them to do a curl, your nervous system doesn't isolate things in that way. If you, and you use terminology, what the hell is a bench press, an incline bench press, a pull down, side raises? You know, the nervous system doesn't think in terms of that. So a lot of times. What I do mainly when I show somebody to do an exercise, I don't use words. I put them in the equipment, I point, I demonstrate, I make it nonverbal because when you're training somebody and they're under any stress at all, and you must take for granted that an injured person or a novice, even if they're not injured, a novice is overwhelmed by the situation, they're not listening to what you're saying. Don't bother talking. Show <laughs> and do, see. <laughs> but, uh, when I'm treating my rehabilitation patients and when you're uh, doing uh, uh, training with most of, not all, but most of your people, you're not trying to do bodybuilding. You're not trying to do muscle right. building. 
What you're doing is what I call, is scientifically, uh, motor unit recruitment. You're training the already existing musculature to work with the central nervous system and even the person's intellect to perform. So most people, you know, you've, you've had people come up to you and say, oh, and, and this is standard, especially with women, oh, I don't want to build big, huge muscles. Well, oh, the very man. fact that it takes overwhelming dedication, it takes heroic effort to build huge muscles. The very fact that that person just told you they don't want to do that guarantees they never will. Also, right. they're genetic. <laughs> they're genetic. 100%. So you say, don't worry about it. But what they will benefit from, and it's a tremendous benefit, is toning up their body parts, especially I get back to my my gig, those multifidus muscles in the low back, or the triceps, or the lower abdominals, or whatever. Tone the muscle yeah. up makes yeah. all the difference in the world. A hundred percent. There's nothing that you just said that I can disagree with. There's. I, I like to tell people, you know, when we start training, um, two things that you hit on. Number one is when I walk up, I'm not going to explain, you know, what the lats are and how they help your back. I'm going to say, yeah. here's how you sit into this lat pull-down machine. Here's how I want you to stay. Here's where the bar goes. And then okay. halfway through, I'll start saying, you should start to feel this right here. And then I'll put my hands on the muscles. I won't even say what the muscles are, but this is where you're supposed yeah. to feel it. Because more than likely, they don't care what the muscles are. They're going to, like you said, they're going to be overwhelmed with, holy cow, can I, can I do six more repetitions? And yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I'm a very touchy-feely person. When I'm training my people, I touch their body parts, and I do yep. this. And i got to watch it with some of the ladies if they're doing chest exercises because I'll reach over and touch what they're seeing. <laughs> so uh, it, uh, you got to give people the kind of feedback. You, 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 you have to approach a person training at their level. Right, yeah, you do. Yep. yep. Yeah, there, that actually reminds me, uh, one of the other trainers that I worked with said that he was told by someone, um, you have to, oh, how do you say it? You have, you can think scientifically, but you have to speak human, I think is how he said yep. it. Like, yep. You can think that, you know what's going on, but you have to inter- you have to bring it out in, in a way that someone's going to interpret that. And I hear the whole, I hear that um, I don't want to build huge muscle thing all the time. How come... How come, well, and I tell people, someone asks me, why is, why aren't we isolating a single muscle group, you know, to make it stronger? And I just simply say, because the body works as a unit, we're going to train it as a unit. You know, we're not in, we're not doing bodybuilding. We're not doing that type of specific activity. Like you said, we're training the motor function to go right into uh, your everyday use. You know, your body, your you're not going to separate a muscle group to bend down and, and pick your kid up. You're yeah. using your entire body. So we're going to try to train that the most effective way we possibly can. And I, I believe that for me and my demographic, that's full body strength training. And yeah. and the intensity level is going to, it's going to change from person to person, but the principles always stay the same. I'm going to push and pull upper body, lower body. Um, I could change the pace, the repetitions, the weight amount, but the fact remains, every single person that walks in, everybody does a bicep curl the same way. Everybody does a leg press the same way. You know, so we're just we're changing just a little bit to match each person's, um, like you said, where they are at the very training moment. Yeah. Do you, uh, as part of your training, usually have people doing squats? Uh, barbell squats? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I do. I'll do... Um, I might have one or two people do squats um, under under barbell, but not many. Yeah, yeah see, uh, it's been touted forever as one of the best exercises you can do, and indeed it is. But it is very difficult. It can be done in almost all cases, but it's very difficult, and you have to be an expert at the squat yourself, I think, and in, in how to communicate to get a person to do a squat correctly. You take mm-hmm. 20 people, and 10 of them are going to be damn near impossible. Uh, and in the final analysis, you'll get uh, 10 of them doing them really good, 5 of them doing it so-so, and 5 of them you just cannot get them to do a proper squat. See, So when you yep. put a say, – say you're an athletic trainer, you've got a whole football team doing squats – Guaranteed that a couple of them are going to hurt themselves. I had a young oh, kid 
I had a young kid just recently. In fact, now I'm finishing up with him here lately. Uh, during uh, uh, he, he's uh, oh my goodness, he's he's the son of a uh, physical therapist that I brought into the country from Chile. I've brought in about uh, 30 physical therapists from the Philippines, from Chile, from Holland, uh, Poland, uh, uh, and Brazil. Uh, and this fella is the son of uh, Samuel. His name is Eddie. Their last name is Gallardo. Uh, he has just gotten a scholarship uh, to play college ball, and the coaches put him on a training routine that involves squats. Now, Eddie is six foot five, weighs two hundred and seventy pounds, and oh, he's going to be a uh, offensive guard, <laughs> which I thought he looks more like a defensive end. But anyway, uh, they got him on the program, and sure enough, he comes down with this horrible back injury, very significant. Couldn't even get out of bed. So Samuel, being my former employee as a physical therapist, knows I got the back machine. So he sends Eddie over to train on the back machine. And within the third time he did it, he was free of his pain. Uh, we told him not to do any squats for a while. We increased the strength of his back by over 40% as measured by the computer testing device in the machine, and then I took him back. He was doing squats. Uh, how would a guy that's six foot plus possibly have good body mechanics? Not possible. Little short guys like Franco Colombo got good body mechanics. So oh, I had to yeah. train him and train him. Yeah, but I achieved I achieved eighty uh, percent proper upright form and good rock rock solid bottom position. Uh, knee, keep the knees spread. Keep the weight on your heels and lift your curl your toes up inside your shoes. That's a uh, advice I give. So I got Eddie doing good squats because those coaches are going to require him to do squats. But yeah. it took it it took, and this is what I would say for anybody, whether it's your client or a young teenage athlete strengthen the back first with a young kid strengthen the back for the first year or more then get a excellent kinesiologist coach to coach you in how to do squats properly and then start your squats now is anybody going to follow that plan of attack not many so there's a hell of a lot of people with back injuries from doing the right thing which is to do squats, but they hurt themselves. So, yeah. no, I, I expected that you, as an intelligent person, were not having many people do squats, and I don't no. have anybody do squats in my place except if they really have a need to do squats. Then I coach them how to do them. Yeah, and, I mean, you know, for for the most part, there's there's two guys, um, one in his uh, early 40s, very easy, Kind of got like the, like you said, the almost the perfect build to do squats. You know, short limbed, yep. he's short torso, and and the other guy is just he's he's young. He's only he's what twenty six, twenty seven years old. He's zero. I've been training him for four years. He has zero injuries. Never had an injury, and um, he's kind of guy who would who would do anything you told him to do until he couldn't do it anymore, <laughs> or until he lost. <laughs> so so you know, it, it's those people who you, you you when they walk in, you're like, okay, now now it's time to up the game. But the uh, but even him, you know, I might do a barbell squat with him once a month, and it's not, and we're not going to overload him so much that he's going to lose form, and I need two people to, to get the bar off his back. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. if in the future we uh, talk uh, again, and you you told me our time parameters were pulling, you were pulling up on him right about now. Uh, we might discuss a little bit a uh, subject that I mentioned way at the beginning of our talk here, and that is that there are uh, – Arthur was big on the – he actually wrote a chapter or a book or whatever chapter on the time factor in exercise, see? Yep. So you've got different parts of the body that would respond most optimally to uh, most trainees – Look at it in terms of how many repetitions do I do in an exercise. More proper question is how many seconds should I be under load? See? Right. And for certain parts of the body, that answer could be uh, 30 to 45 seconds. Other parts of the body, 60 to 90 seconds. Other parts of the body, uh, 90 to 120 seconds. See, so does anybody voluntarily do squat or leg presses or leg extensions for two full minutes. Man, no, they don't. 
but they all should be. They all should be doing uh, high enough repetitions so that it takes right at uh, at least 100 seconds, if not 120 seconds, to come to the point of what Arthur would call momentary muscular failure. Uh, they would say, oh, that's impossible, I wouldn't use any weight. Guess what? If you train that way, you end up using almost the, uh, close to, let's say, 80% of the same weight for two solid minutes as you normally do. Uh, what's the, uh, the a common rep pattern? It would be 10 repetitions going up and down, yeah. not very quickly, but fairly quickly. And if you put a clock on them, it's 35 to 40 seconds. Yeah. That's less than bam, bam. half. That's less than half of the duration they should be. See, so uh, you discuss for, you discuss what exercise to do, what form of exercise, uh, whether it be machine or this, and and and, and then also uh, timing. How fast uh, do you lift? Do you lower? Do you hold it in the correct position? But the 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 one that is. As important as all the others is time under load, and most people settle into a routine where they do, number one, almost the same time under load for any body part, and that time under load is roughly 50% of the duration of what it should be. Now, the bottom line on my advice just then was it's going to make training a lot less pleasant, a lot more uncomfortable but a lot more beneficial. But who, more, who, more efficient who in the natural you, course of things wants that advice? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> it's more efficient, and you get, uh, you know, you're you're still working just as hard, and it's probably not, you're not going to be in the gym as long either. Yeah. But, but I think that, I think I just wrote that down, time factor in exercise, and um, I can actually probably link it to, the Arthur Jones article. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I'm going to make a note because I think we should do another podcast. Yeah. I think we can cover uh, – it's going to take more than one, one more podcast. We'll just yeah. agree on that. <laughs> Let, yeah. and, and I said at the very beginning I love to tell stories. This is the last story, and then you and I got to go enjoy our Memorial Day right today. Yes. Okay. But uh, uh, I was the first person in the country to uh, – buy an entire set of Nautilus equipment and use them to train athletes in Atlanta, Georgia. At that time, there were only two other places in the entire city of Atlanta to train with weights, and I had the third place. You had the downtown YMCA, and then Decatur had a YMCA, and then you had my place was called uh, B-Fit. Okay, I... uh, Trained myself, like I say, I'm a human performance laboratory. I had established a training routine that only I could survive. Okay, it it involved using each piece of equipment for a uh, exercise of approximately 15 to 20 repetitions, performed in 21 minutes. Now the weight, I'd allow the weight to be light enough to where you could get more than the 15 to 20 repetitions. It was 15 repetitions for any upper body, 20 for any lower. But the weight was irrelevant because this thing was going to uh, stress you so much that you weren't going to be able to complete it. So most of the fellows, even if they were my size, I let them use 75% of my weight, you know, and, and yeah. challenge them. I had a $100 bill laminated over the entrance, and anybody that could complete that workout Got that $100 bill. Okay, it was up there. I, I was in business there for two and a half years. Uh, one fella come in. Uh, I, I've sent you my uh, chapter on gym rats, uh, yep. chapter from my memoirs. Uh, Jimmy Lyle. Jimmy Lyle was going to end up spending his life as a special agent with the FBI. He was noted to be quite the athlete. He had won for two straight years a decathlon uh, uh, competition they had at the downtown YMCA. So Jimmy Lyle comes in and says, I want to try that routine. And uh, I says, fine, we'll put you on it. And he kept going and going and going. Most guys got through four or five or six of the exercises. He gets to the 10th exercise. He completes it. He looks at me and says, what's next? (laughs) And my heart had sunk. And I said, there's nothing next. I said, other than me getting up there and giving you the $100. He says, oh, no, forget it. I got an appointment. I'm going somewhere. So he leaves. 
And I, I got the $100. The next day I'm coming in the place, and it, it was at the arcade to a bowling alley in Decatur, Georgia. This barber that had the first business there, he says, uh, you own that place in there? I says, yeah. He says, people pay you to go in there? I says, yeah. He says, that's amazing. I said, what you mean? He says, the, the, just two days ago, I was going to get in my car to go home out in the back parking lot, and I saw somebody laying in the bushes being sick. And he says it was Jim Lyle. Jim Lyle, uh, Jimmy's uh, father, was an insurance agent right down the street. He says, uh, uh, Jimmy Lyle was laying in the bushes, vomiting his guts out. And I, I, I said, oh, that's nice. And as I go into my business, I'm saying to myself, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. gotcha. <laughs> you put so that $100 that, right back up, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, so he didn't have nowhere to go. He wanted to get out of there for him embarrass himself. That's how we... with the bushes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's how we trained. When... I was in that business training athletes with Arthur's equipment. We were trying to prove not only the superiority of his equipment, but the simplicity of training. I trained uh, usually around 120 ball players twice a week. We would have them come in, say, 10 at a time. Each fellow would put the other fellow through the entire routine, took about 25, 30 minutes, to the point of failure. Then they'd rest five minutes. Then the other guy would train the other guy. See, and we made them trade off each time in case the one guy had pushed the other guy so hard the first time that somebody wanted revenge. See, that's right. how we wanted to train. If you didn't train, I just stood there and I watched. And if you know, when someone in your gym, it, of course, when you train people at a, moderate level it's not important but if you're trying to train to maximum muscular intensity you don't just stop at number 10 because you arrived at number 10 you go till you can't move the weight again that is maximum effort when i yep. would see someone in the of those 120 athletes not training maximally i would call them over to the side give them their money back and send them out the door i actually sent the one starting quarterback out the door. His coach brought him back in the next time, begged me to let him back in. This kid gained either 26 or 29 pounds, went from not, he wasn't a starter his junior year. His senior year, he was the number one all-star quarterback in the state of Georgia, and he played for the next four years as a starting punter at Georgia Tech. That's what we did for Mike Johnson, young teenage kid. By Making him train at the ultimate of of muscular ability using what at that time was the best equipment in the world and training under strict guidelines, strict uh, pun, uh, coercion. Coercion is the word. See, can you train people like that in a commercial setting? No, you can't. No, you can't. <laughs> no, you can't. Yeah. Because I'm not, I'm not cleaning up puke off of a carpet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, I was famous for having the barf bucket. Uh, Jim Flanagan, if you call, if you call Jim Flanagan to this day, Jim's got a, uh, exercise place down in Orlando. If you call Jim Flanagan and ask him about stories about the barf bucket, he'll tell you, cause we had a barf bucket in front of the pullover machine, and he was in there one day, and the guy's doing a pullover, and as he come forward, I vomits into the barf bucket, and Jim thought for sure I'd let him out of the machine, and I was willing to let him out of the machine. And the the kid's coach was up at the front, and the kid shakes his head no, and he kept going. <laughs> <laughs> That's intimidation factor. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, well, hey, Bill, look, we could keep going and going and going, and uh, I, I tell you what I'm going to do is uh, we'll end the call here in a second, but I'll shoot you an email of when this is yeah. going to be posted, and then let's yeah. uh, coordinate another one soon. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Well, I enjoyed talking with you, and I hope um, the uh, uh, flamboyancy of my presentation makes a lot of people listen to the whole uh, podcast because attention spans can be short. <laughs> luckily, luckily, we have uh, there's this new invention out called a pause button. So hopefully, people, oh, yeah, 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 people can use the yeah. pause button to come back to it, but. Right. Um, I'll I'll put some other. I I took some other notes while we were talking, so I'll put the yep. in the show notes. And uh, everybody, be on the lookout for Bill Andrews. Bill Andrews number two coming up soon. And uh, hey, happy Memorial Day and enjoy yeah. enjoy the time. And uh, I'll talk to you very soon.
Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Bill.